Well, good morning. I want to welcome you once again to First Baptist Church. I am so glad that you have decided to join us this morning, whether here in person at 505 Community Drive or wherever you happen to be out in the world through the wonder of the internet. I do want to take a moment to thank Pastor Ben Yee uh, for coming and sharing the word with us last week, and I was able to follow that. He did a wonderful job, so thank you, Ben, uh, for stepping up and and doing such a great job. I won't lie to you, I watched it while I was waiting in line for Pirates of the Caribbean at Disney World. So I was with you, but I also was pumped about seeing Captain Jack Sparrow. So, and I was praying that we wouldn't have a breakdown of the ride so that I could break through onto the ride. And it did work out. If you haven't uh, heard Ben's message, I know last week was Memorial Day, so a lot of us were gone doing things. Listen, uh, do yourself a favor and get online. We, we have that sermon available. You can find it on Facebook. You can find it on our website. And uh, for those of you that don't know, that like to do the podcasty thing and like to download things onto like Apple or whatever, we do have a podcast of the sermon itself that's available every week via Apple Podcasts. So uh, if you want to, you can subscribe to that and it'll be sent directly to your phone or whatever. Um, I guess that's how that works. I'm not as tech savvy as one might think, and that's what they tell me. Um, So we do have that available. But again, uh, Ben, thank you so much. He did a great job of dealing with a difficult passage. For those that didn't notice, uh, I sandbagged him with the worst passage in Esther, having to deal with the execution of Haman, and, and he did a great job with that. And so thanks. So, uh, I'm so honored and so blessed by the Lord to have such a great preacher here in-house to, to be able to step in and such a great pastoral presence here every week. So Ben, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. I love you. And so thanks so much. Uh, But it's good to be back with you. I'm glad to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, As we turn our attention to the word of the Lord, let's go to God in prayer once more, asking God to speak to us in the ways we need to hear from him today. Father God, we do thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, we thank you that even as we've sung this morning, though we have so little to offer you, that God, you have chosen to offer us all of yourself. And that, God, you over and over again come and serve as our deliverance, whether it's a mess that we find ourselves in at the making of the hands of others, or all too often, Lord, a mess of our own making. And so, God, we are grateful to you for your goodness and your grace to us, for your love that is above and beyond all measure, beyond what we could ask and what we could imagine. God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the truth of the book of Esther. And this morning as we dive into chapter 8, I pray that you would speak to us in clear ways, the ways that we need to hear from you, Lord, that you would challenge and encourage us as we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How many of you have heard this phrase before at some point in your life? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Is there, has there ever been a more false phrase in the human language, right? I mean, there are a lot of them, but that one ranks up there, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Words will never harm me. It's a great idea. You know, the statement comes from a place of grace, right? But the, the existence of the phrase itself reveals the reality of the untruth of the statement, doesn't it? 
The, the fact that we have to say a, a, a phrase that, hey, sticks and stones, these physical things, they call real physical harm, but words, they don't really do any damage. The fact that we have a phrase that categorizes and diminishes the types of hurt we might feel while elevating others reveals the truth that words, in fact, can and do hurt us. You know, there's actually evidence, and this is kind of tangential, but it was interesting, and I couldn't figure out how to work it into the rest of the sermon, so I'm going to share it. Did you know that the, the tendency to put words on weapons has been something that's happened throughout history, right? Like in, in World War II, when, when we were bombing Japan and when we were bombing, um, when we were bombing Germany, the, the soldiers used to write messages to, to Hitler and whatnot on the bombs before they dropped them. Did you know that that is something that goes all the way back to Roman times and before? That they, they, have, they have slingshot from Roman times where the Romans had carved and had taken the time to engrave on stones, take that. How do you like that one, Right? It's amazing. You look it up, true story. I did a lot of research on it. Couldn't think of how to fit it into this, so it goes into the introduction. But, but it does kind of reveal the truth, doesn't it? Six and stones do, in fact, break bones, but the reality is that words hurt too. I mean, putting the words on the slingshot or on the bomb adds insult to injury. And, and I would submit to you that perhaps at times words are even more damaging then the actions with sticks and stones or other weapons of mass or minor destruction. And the reason that I think that they are more destructive because, is because of this. How did we get to the point where we were using the weapons of destruction? I mean, is it not often the result of careless or poorly chosen or aggressive words that we find ourselves then using sticks and stones? It's true. Sticks and stones can absolutely break bones, but words do longer-lasting damage. The scarring and the wounds from our words can last generations. And I think that's one of the things, as I considered this passage that we're looking at here in, in Esther 8 this morning, trying to figure out how, how exactly do I, do I take this message that really kind of dances around some things we've already dealt with. How, how do, what do we see in this message that is for us today? And what continued to jump out at me as I read it is, is the reality and the importance of our words, the damage that our words can do, and how we must be careful and consider our words well. It's easy for us to overlook the centrality of words and the damage that they can do in the book of Esther, because this is a, a political or civic book. It's talking about de declarations and decrees that are coming from emperors and, and from advisors. And so we think, well, that really doesn't apply to us. Or we want to apply it outward. And we want to we take it and, and superimpose it on our government and their careless words. And, and the way they don't think about what they're saying. Or the way they create policies and they don't think about the, the, the law of, of lasting effects, the fact that their effects are going to expand beyond what they are thinking at the time. But it's easy for us to do that and to look outward and say, yeah, those people are so bad at that. But that is one of the problems with the church is we like to take the text and use it as a lens through which we look at the rest of the world. And there is a time and a place for that. But might I submit to you that it's important for us also to early and often and always, I would say, also hold the word of God up as a mirror that reveals to us the truth of ourselves, our own hearts and our own lives. 
we can adapt and adjust in appropriate ways to live as God has called us. I think that's what we need to do with Esther this morning. We need to see the warnings and encouragements present as it pertains to our words. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8, and we're going to read it in its entirety. Esther 8 says this. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. And Esther again pleaded with the king. Falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see the disaster befall my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name, in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all of Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, the governors and the nobles of the 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies." The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the 12th of a- month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as a law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing a royal garment of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating and many other 
People of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Now again, we, we read this and you might think to yourself, well, how does that have to do, with, what does that have to do with words? Well, is Esther not, as we consider it, is Esther not really just a book of words? Now, I know that sounds obvious, right? That's not, that's not the obvious statement that it seems because what is any book but a, a series of words strung together, right? What I mean by saying that Esther is a book of words, to this point, other than the execution of Haman, what have we seen other than talking? Anything? I mean, really, it's, it's edict and decree after edict and decree, and it's advisors coming and speaking to the king, and it's the king making outlandish claims and, and accusations against his wife, and, and it's the king calling in, I guess there was the beauty pageant, but, but there really is not a lot of action. Esther is a lot of talking back and forth and preparing for the outcome of words that have been said at the beginning of Esther. It's just a bunch of series of declarations. But those declarations, those words, have actions that will ultimately be attached to them, do they not? And even in the moment, as we go, we see how those words and just the life of Mordecai, but also the people of Susa and the Jews throughout the region, how those words bring about either great mourning, seen through sackcloth, ash, and fasting, or at the end, we see how they bring about great joy and relief as Mordecai leaves in royal garments with a crown on his head and everything is good. But we see that words have real power. And that's the first thing that, that comes to my mind as I consider not just this passage, but all of Esther, is that words have power and we need to choose them with care. Words have power. Choose them with care. Esther could, could serve as a master class of the harm that comes from emotionally charged, poorly considered words. Verses 1 through 2, we, we find ourselves in, in what we'll call the, ha- the aftermath of the Haman incident. Right? Haman had, had set up the poll, as we saw a couple weeks ago, and his intent was to, to execute um, Mordecai because Mordecai didn't properly respect him. And that's ultimately caused this, this whole decree to be sent out that the Jews were going to be killed. And uh, the, the queen, she, she makes some counter moves and chooses her words really carefully. And ultimately, Haman gets strung up or he gets impaled or whatever the case, he's executed in a gruesome faction. It's not a good thing. And so we're in the aftermath of that. And we see in the direct aftermath of that, as Ben pointed out last week, we're going to start right there in verses 1 and 2, that the king was incredibly gracious to both Esther and Mordecai following the Haman incident. I mean, what had been the king's original promise to Esther, right? We we can go back to chapter 4 and 5, and we know that Esther comes into the king, and she presents herself, puts herself at risk. The king holds out the scepter. She touches the scepter. She arises, and she says, hey, it would be great if I didn't die. And the king's like, I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. Whatever you want up to half my kingdom. You know, what's interesting to me is we talked about that a couple weeks ago, and we talked about how that actually was not a literal offer. That the king wasn't actually offering to give her half the kingdom. It was, I will do whatever you need, baby. I will take care of you. You tell me whatever you ask, it's yours. That's what he's saying. 
You know what's interesting, though? Is the king, in effect, gives Esther half the kingdom. Why do I say that? Actually, a little bit more. Because remember, when Haman says, hey, I've got this group of people. They are annoying. They don't follow our laws. They, they just cannot be tolerated because they're different. And, and he says, I, I will pay you, O king, two-thirds of the national revenue to let me kill these people. Haman is ridiculously rich. So if that's what is in his bank account, and the king says, Esther, you can have the entire estate of Haman. He makes good on that promise, does he not? I mean, in effect, net worth, he, he essentially makes good on that, on that promise. He gives all of the possessions to Esther. And Esther's like, hey, but what about Mordecai, my cousin, who's worked as my adoptive father? What, what about him? And the king's like, well, don't worry, I got him too. And he gives Mordecai the position and the prestige of Haman. Esther gets the property. Mordecai gets the position and the power. We see this, this turnaround coming, and he's given the, the symbol of the king's authorities. He's allowed to, it says that he entered the presence of the king, which doesn't just mean he walks in, the king says, hey, good job, and he goes out. It means that he was given license to come in before the king whenever he wanted. He's the king's right-hand man, immediate access to the most powerful man in the world. That's a good deal. That's a big turnaround. That's good stuff. King is incredibly gracious. Now, something for us to keep in mind, because it seems like a dramatic turn. You start in verses 1 and 2, and it's like, hey, the king gives him all this stuff, and the very next thing we see is Esther crying. Now, it, scholars believe that there actually should be like a, a page marker here. That, that there's actually a period of several days that passes from the events with Haman being executed and Esther and Mordecai being rewarded and promoted, and what are we going to do next? That time has elapsed, and Esther and Mordecai have had time to sit back and talk and say, okay, now we have a bigger problem. What are we going to do? Why do we say that? Well, let's look at verses 3 and 4 again. It tells us that Esther again pleaded with the king. Falling before him, weeping. Now that, that could happen in the moment, right? She's already in the presence of the king. He just rewarded her. He gave her all this property, gave the position to Mordecai. And so it would make sense that she just falls down there. But you know what doesn't make sense is the very next thing that happens. It says she falls down and she pleads before the king. And what does the king do? He extends the golden scepter to her. You know what that indicates to us? That Esther has for a second time taken her life into her hands. She has for a second time approached the king uninvited and unannounced. And the king has to extend the scepter or else Esther is a dead woman. But Esther understands something. That whether the king kills her now or later, Esther's head is already on the chopping block. So several days later, Esther comes in and she throws herself before the king, weeping and crying. And the king extends the gold scepter to Esther again and she arises and she says, If it pleases the king, and if he regards me with favor, and he thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written to overrule that of Haman. He says, she says, King, please, please. Cancel the previous order. Lord King, take those words back that you said. 
Undo the damage that you've laid out for my people. She says, how can I bear to see disaster befall my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? She comes to the truth of what she's asked for. Yes, it's true. The king gave her half of the kingdom. But remember, that promise is, hey, tell me whatever your request is, whatever you want. Esther never requested half the kingdom. Esther's request was actually kind of simple and commonsensical. Hey, king, it'd be great if me and my family didn't die. Like, that would be awesome. It'd be really cool if you could not kill me. King's like, but I gave you all this stuff. Now, the indication in, in Xerxes' response shows that he's less than pleased with her coming into her pre- his presence again. Like, you're back again? You need more? Did, did I not just give you all of his property, right? Like, I killed the guy that was coming after you. Uh, your enemy, I killed him in a terrible way, a very public way, demonstrating what happens to people that come after the queen. I gave you all of his stuff, and I gave your uncle his power. What more do you need from me? She's like, hey, please, take it back. Just take it back. Undo what you've done. Overrule the previous declaration. But the fact is the king couldn't do that. Now this is, this is where it gets a little bit difficult for us to understand because in our, our modern economy, we, we don't have a situation where an edict can't be undone, right? Like we can make a law, then we can write another law to undo the previous law. We can change legislation. Well, that wasn't true then. And I would argue that even today, even when we make a law and then we write another law to undo the law, have we undone all of the harm that was done from the first words that were said? I would submit to you that we haven't. That oftentimes that argument over the first law creates, even though it, was, it came in and then, then it being, it's now created bitterness because we started the, the problem. We started that fire in the first place. It reminds me of an old adage, perhaps you know, and if you have young kids, maybe you know how this works. You know what this is? Toothpaste, right? Have you ever, like when you have little kids and they go in to brush their teeth, what do they do, right? You're like, oh man, what are you doing? Like, Johnny, Susie. Like, you're wasting toothpaste. And then the kid's like, oh, I got this. Don't worry about it, you know? (laughs) You know, I could sit here and do this all day, but what's not going to happen? What's not going to happen? That toothpaste, no matter how hard I try, is going to go back into that tube. Is that not another phrase we use about people's words? Hey, you're, you're never getting the, once it's out, you're never getting the tube back into the toothpaste. And as it's illustrated for me right now, I didn't think really well about this. The, <laughs> the mess is robust, right? Give me a second here. That's a better illustration than I thought it was. You ever have one of those statements that your mom said to you for years and you're like, that's kind of dumb. And then you do it later, and you're like, that makes sense. <laughs> right now, 
Now 30 was one of those moments for Dr. Jeremy Myers. That's a true statement right there. You know what? Once the toothpaste is out of the tube, there is no putting it back. And that's the truth. I mean, that's about our words. It doesn't matter if it's a degree, decree on paper. We can put canceled on that, but the words still were said. The, 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 the harm still happened. The bitterness is still there. The, the, the damage to the relationship has been done. And the truth is we can look throughout the book of Esther and we see the damage being done over and over and over again. At every turn. And the messes in Esther, by and large, are the result of Xerxes' ambivalence to his words. I mean, Xerxes, for being the most powerful dude in the world, is really quick to throw a signet ring to someone, right? The symbol of power. It's like a presidential stamp. Let's take it further. It's not even like a presidential stamp. It's like the president of the United States taking his briefcase with the nuclear codes and the button and saying, here, kid, take care of this how you want. Right? Do what you see best, right? That, that's just a bad idea to just pass that out. But that's what, that's what Xerxes does over and over again. He's like, I really don't care about this issue. Say or do what you want. So I would say even his indifference to his words is a big problem. We, we like to think that it's the aggression that is a problem, but is it not both and? Like indifference to the damage our words might do or indifference to the way that others might speak for us. There, there's a big problem there. And the messes in Esther are the result of Xerxes' carelessness with his words. Now Esther, on the other hand, her, her words are consistently chosen with care. Esther over and over again is cautious. She's calculated. She's thinking about it. Now she has to be because if her words are wrong, she's going to die. Look at Esther's words in verses 5 and 6. She says, if it pleases the king, hey, if this makes you happy, if you care about me, if you think it's a good idea, if you think it's the right thing to do, she never accuses the king. She never assumes his intent or his emotions. She puts the ball in his court. If it makes him happy, and he thinks it's good, and he cares about her. The problem, though, is all those things were true. We could submit that Xerxes did think it was a good idea to undo what Haman had done. Clearly, based on his reaction to Haman, King Xerxes realizes that Haman was not a good guy and that his decree probably came on the backs of untruths and that, that there's damage to be done by that. He tries to make amends. But just as we illustrated, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you cannot put it back. And that was especially true in Persian culture. So what's the king's response? The same thing the king's response always is. Here's the signet ring. Say what you want to say in my name. He has no caution, no care about what his words are going to, to bring about in society. Society. His words had written a check that had to be cashed. Sitting in a mess of his own failure, his own making. And his failure 
to measure and control his own words, or those spoken in his name, denied him the power to keep his promise. Remember his initial promise. Esther, whatever you want, I will do it for you. And Esther says, he says, hey, it'd be great if I, you'd not kill my people. And he says, okay, that's cool. But here is all these possessions. Here's all this prestige. Here's all this power. And she's like, awesome. Thank you. Not what I asked for. So there is some embarrassment to Xerxes because Xerxes says, in a passive way, you do what you can with it, but I can't fix it. I said what I said. I got to wonder, how many of the messes of our lives are the result in part or whole? of poorly considered, emotionally charged, hastily spoken words. How many issues in our lives come about because we have not, as James said, tamed our tongue? Doesn't James warn about how uh, a tongue, though small, is like a rudder of a ship and it can move you to disaster? Doesn't, doesn't James tell us how the, the tongue is like a spark in the body? It's a spark, just a small ember, but, but it can set ablaze a great forest. That the, that the very powers of hell, of hell, are present in our words. I've had time to think about this, right? Because I've been thinking about this passage for two weeks. And, and maybe some of you are more introverted, so it's less of an issue for you. But if we really think about it, all of us, I would argue, can find times in our lives where we've had unspeakably big messes that came about because we did not consider our words carefully enough. Because we spoke in anger. Because we allowed hateful things to come from our mouth. You know what? When that happens, we need to take responsibility for our words. Xerxes never does. He's like, it is what it is. Here's the ring. Say something else. Say more. Would it not have benefited Xerxes to say less? Would it not benefit us oftentimes to say less? than to speak wrongly? There's an old medical adage that I think is, is fitting here. Better an ounce of prevention than a pound of cure. Better an ounce of prevention than a pound of cure. It, is that not true in this situation? Is it not better for us to shut our mouths and say nothing than to open our mouths and make a mess that then we have to try to clean up? There's a quote I found from a man named Joseph Andrus. It says this, be careful with your words. Once spoken, they can't be taken back. Speak kindly and complimentary. Angry words can cut like a knife, and the wound can cut far deeper and last much longer than any physical wound. Speak kindly or don't 
speak. Now, we've, we've got the negative example of Xerxes and pretty much everyone else in Esther. But then we also have Esther. And Esther gives us a positive example. Because Esther, again, is, is in making a habit of, of choosing her words very carefully. If we go back to Esther 4, we see that, that before Esther even thought about approaching the, queen, the king, what did she do? It tells us she took three days to fast And we can add and pray to that. Before she went to the king with her important request, she went to the Lord. She considered what God would have her say and how God was leading in her life. In Psalm 19, 14, it says, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, my rock, and my Redeemer. Pastor Nathan and I worked with a pastor in northern Indiana that every time he would step into the pulpit, before he would say anything else, he would stand there and he would say those words. He would recite that as a prayer, understanding that the words that he was going to say that Sunday morning as a pastor carried weight and wanting God to guide and direct them. But, but might I submit to you that we should have that same prayer in our hearts and our minds every day in every interaction? That it's not just the words of the preacher on Sunday morning that carry weight. That it's not just the words of the preacher that can do damage or can bring about hope in life. Perhaps it would be a good practice for all of us every morning to get up and pray the prayer. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you my rock, and my redeemer. Esther consistently is living out James 1, 19 through 20. She's slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become, we'll not just say angry this morning, I'm gonna amend it, my own words, my own personal version, slow to respond with emotion, Because the emotion-driven reality of the human existence does not bring about the righteous life God requires of us. Words have power. Choose them with care. Because our words do more than just impact the people in front of us. You know, the whole theme of our Esther series is Where is God? Noting that God isn't explicitly mentioned in the book. But as we've looked through the book, if you've paid attention, God is there. Like the the pages of Esther ooze with the presence of the Almighty and they reveal a God who consistently is present for and working in his power for the deliverance of his people. It is there throughout the book of Esther. You know know where the, the, the presence of God is most Clearly seen, though, in the book of Esther, it's in the words of his people. It's when when Mordecai and Esther say, I'm going to fast for three days. And, And then we see the reality of God's presence in the words of Esther and Mordecai here at the end in chapter 8. As the people in the region are 
terrified because of this turn of events as seen in the words of the king via Mordecai. Our words, along with our actions, should serve as evidence of God's activity in our lives. And should is the wrong word there. I apologize. I apparently did not choose my words carefully enough last week. Our words will serve as evidence of God's activity in our lives, or they won't. God should be seen or heard in the words we speak to one another. Now we see in the passage that Mordecai is empowered to, to mitigate the mess that the king via Haman has made. And so they do. We see them, how do they undo the king's words? Well, they just make some more words. And those words that Mordecai issues don't undo what's done in the, in the, first, the first edict, right? You know what the second edict does? It essentially legalizes and puts a date on a government-approved civil war. They're like, hey, they're still going to come to fight you. We can't tell them they can't now. But you know what? You, you can fight back. It's not a great consolation. I mean, because now you, you've just changed, moved around where the blood is possibly going to be shed. You've possibly increased it. Verses 9 through 4, we see that. that the, the new edict does not undo the injurious intent of the original edict. It doesn't stop the hurt. Just limits it. Moves it around. And Mordecai's decree mirrors Haman's. It is intended to prevent harm not to inflict it, though. There is a sense where Mordecai has chosen his words more carefully than Haman. Because Haman's edict, if we were to go back and look, says, look, on this day, you can go and you kill all of the Jews you can. Men, yes. Women, children, everybody. Annihilate them all. Take all of their possessions. There's a slight difference, though, in Mordecai's. Let's look at it again. says this, orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, also the Jews in their own script. And Mordecai wrote to them in the name of the king Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them on mounted couriers. Verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. To destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children. And to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month. Same day that the other edict had said. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves, to avenge themselves on their enemies. Now, I'm a big Avengers fan, and, and Tony Stark is my favorite. Iron Man is my favorite Avenger. And, and there, was, there was one time when I, I, didn't, I didn't appreciate Tony Stark's tone of what he was saying. 
But you kind of understand it because Tony Stark has been stuck out in space and he comes back and, and the earth is in utter ruins because the blip has happened. And they're arguing back and forth about what they're going to do. And Tony's like, hey, I told you we should have done something. And then he makes this statement. He says, but, but that's not what we do, is it? We are the Avengers, not the Prevengers. You know, it's, it's funny in the moment, but it's true. The, the, the Avengers, and that's what makes them the good guys, isn't it? Is that they, they don't preemptively go strike and attack someone without knowing that wrong is going to be perpetuated, that, that wrong is going to happen. They don't attack without evidence or what, without incitement. They, they are responding to potential wrong. They are not inflicting it. And that's what's being said here. Mordecai isn't saying, hey, get ready for that day. And before they can attack, because Mordecai could have. You know what Mordecai could have done? He could have said, hey, look, you know what? They're coming to attack on the 13th. So you know what we're going to do? On the 12th, we're going to go in and we're going to kill all them. You know, do unto others as they do unto you, eye for an eye. You tried to kill us on the 13th? Well, who has the ring now, baby? The 12th. Ba-boom! That's what I would have done. We're the prevengers now, baby. But that's not what Mordecai does. He considers his words with care. And the Jews are given permission, and the wording here, the avenge word means to stand for their lives, to stand against the wrong when it comes. They are to stand for what is right in the face of unrelenting evil should it come. Romans 12, 17 through 19, it tells us this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful what to do what is right in the eyes of everyone or what is best for everyone involved. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. As people of faith, yes, we are to stand firm in the truth of God's word. We are to declare it with compassion and grace and with boldness. And this will at times put us at odds with the world around us, but we are not to intentionally seek to be hostile to the world around us. Yes, that might be how the world works. They, they might come and Jesus turns that on its, on its back. The fact is, even if Esther was giving license for us to go and, and do physical harm on others, Jesus undoes that. Jesus takes that right away. He contextualizes this in a different light. And in the words of, when you take the words of Jesus and you superimpose it and you understand Esther through the lens of Jesus, what did Jesus say? Love your enemies. Pray for them. Don't hurt those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. We struggle with that as Christians even. And part of the reason we struggle with it is because we, we, we struggle to separate our American, nation, our American nature, which is predicate on, predicated on, hey, the British government did us wrong, taxation without representation, let's, let's destroy them, let's push them into the sea. But we're to be Christians first. 
You know, we like that when we, we get to stand against, you know, things that the government is, is pushing. I think about this this month. We're in Pride Month, right? And so we want to stand firm and we want to make declarations online, which, which is fine. Like we can, call, we can point out that the rainbow was a sign of God's covenant for his people, but, but we don't have to be hostile. Like would it not be better for us to say nothing and to demonstrate our grace in personal relationships rather than through blasting social media posts everywhere? Because the context of our words is lost in the screen, brothers and sisters. And let's be honest, our response is more about anger and self-defense than it is concern for God and his word. God's going to take care of himself. It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You and I, our job is to speak the truth in love. Let me say that last part again. In love. Our concern should be to speak with these people with compassion and grace. To learn to live in the dissonance of different views. To, to not be driven by fear that, that, the, that some ambiguous mass of they in the world is going to somehow overtake us. Remember, brothers and sisters, did Jesus not say that the gates of hell shall not overcome his church? If that's true, then why do we get so riled up all the time against these little blips on the map of social justice movements that are happening that we don't agree with? And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-social justice. Those that know me know that I am very much on justice for those that are, that, that are being marginalized and hurt. And we as a church have gone above and beyond to serve and to make space for those who are different than us and who we would even say are living in sin. So please hear me. I'm not being judgmental or condescending. I'm truly not trying to be. We need to speak with love. Our our words, and I I myself was one that they used to call that sloppy agape, that our words should be saturated and dripping with grace. I hate that terminology, but that's the truth. There should be grace in every interaction that we have. Even when we have to tell someone they're wrong, we don't have to do it in a hostile way. We can do it in a way that is seeking to prevent harm, seeking to bring about both their good and ours and the glory of God. That should be the overarching theme here, that we're trying to not make God look bad. Can, can, I, can I just say with all humility, and grace that I can, that we as the modern church don't often do a very good job of that. We're so concerned with being right that we miss the mark on being righteous. We bought the lie that power is what controls the world, forgetting that ultimately it is the divine providential hand of God that moves and writes the story of history. I got really far afield there. I I apologize. As people of faith, we are to stand firm in God's truth, but leaving room for God to move as he sees fit. Maybe we should say less. Trust God more. We neither start nor finish fights. Isn't that what we like to say? I may not start the fight, but I'm darn sure going to finish it. That's not what this is saying here. Rather than starting or finishing the fight, how, do, how about we seek to stop the fight altogether? 
and do our best to, to do no harm, to do all the good we can and let God bring about justice in his time and in his way. See, Mordecai's words don't just give the Jews the right to defend themselves. That may be what we want to focus on. But what it ultimately does is it demonstrates the true source of their deliverance, the, the almighty hand of God. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at the end here. We see that they're celebrating, and it says at the very end of chapter, verse 17, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Might I submit to you that that's a poor choice of wording by the translators? Ain't nobody was afraid of the Jews. You know what they're afraid of? The dramatic turnaround that had just happened. That one minute we have Mordecai covering his head with ash and dust, sitting in sackcloth, going around mourning and weeping because an edict has been made to destroy the Jews. And then at the end we see Mordecai coming out from the presence of the king, his head covered in a golden crown, wearing bright purple and white, highly priced robes, royal garments. And so the people are looking at, they see the words of Mordecai, they see the words of Haman, and they see that God has done something here. That this dramatic turnaround can only happen as an act of God. And this is another example of what we see throughout the Old Testament of, of the strength leaving the enemies of God's people because God showed up. You know, I, think, I think too often we don't see that happen anymore because we tend to look at God and say, God, we'll take this. God, you're moving too slowly for our liking. Is that not true for God? Just brief tangential thought. Is that not true for God, for God always? Does God, do any of you ever find that God moves at the pace you want? I mean, if you do, let's have a discussion. Maybe you're just way more patient than me, but I, I often find that when I pray, I'm coming to God with urgency, and I want God to move yesterday. And God's thinking, oh, son, you got six to seven months to wait still. Like, you're going to sit in this for a minute. We don't like that, especially as Americans. We're used to, like, instant gratification. We can, in a moment, take care of anything. Like, I can jump on my watch right now and order something through Amazon without touching a button, and it'll be here tomorrow morning. And we're used to that with everything. And so I wonder if the world doesn't see the truth of God's moving. Maybe we don't see the truth of God's providential hand moving because we're too busy shouting over are working over what God is trying to do in and through our lives. Perhaps we should say less. Trust God more. Now listen to me. I'm not saying we shouldn't say anything. I'm a preacher. Like, my job is to say words, right? And those in the church know that I say more, Right? There was one thing about Ben's sermon last week I was like watching as he was winding down and I was like, oh, we're setting a bad precedence this week. <laughs> I literally looked at Robin, we're getting ready to go on the ride and I'm like, oh no. And she's like, what's wrong? I was like, Ben's closing. She's like, that's okay. I was like, no, he's got another 10 minutes he needs to go. <laughs> People are going to start expecting that. <laughs> Not saying we shouldn't say anything. I'm just saying we should be more cautious 
And that when the words don't fit and the words don't feel right and the words don't seem to align with what we think God would want, it would be better for us to delay our words and say them later when they are better thought than to say them now and do harm and to make messes than we have to undo. Perhaps we should consider once again the words of Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, we've got to understand that when we speak, much as these advisors of the king, when we speak, we are not just speaking for ourselves. We are not just speaking for our assembly. When we speak as members of the body of Christ, we are speaking oftentimes for Jesus. That the words people hear from your mouth will then reflect upon the truth that we claim to believe. We need to say less. Trust God more. We need to learn to recognize the incredible power couched within our words. Understanding that our words can do incredible damage. But our words can also defend. They can break or they can build. They can bring harm or they can bring healing. And part of our calling as image bearers of the divine is to be creative agents in this world. Our job is to be bringers of life, not death. Of love, not hate. As Peter confessed in John 6, 8, Jesus is the holder of the words of life. And in his grace, he has entrusted them to us. As Paul says in Philippians 2.16, we are to hold firmly to the word of life. But what we hold to, we're also to hold out. What we hold in our hearts, we are to share with a world in need. It is both our defense against the attacks of this world, but also, also the offense that destroys our enemies, not by undoing them, but by making them our friends and our family. May we speak words of life and peace that God may be glorified and our world may be molded into his image through his grace. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our salvation. Father God, may that be truth for us today. May we consider carefully and cautiously our words May we understand the harm that can come about when our words are careless or hateful. And may we seek to speak with grace, compassion, and love. May Jesus be seen and in this instance be heard through the words of our mouth. God, lead and direct. Give us faith in your providential, powerful hand that continues to protect and care for us. May we remember that you literally died for us in order that we might live for you. May we do so with grace and compassion in Jesus' name. Amen. This time I'm going to invite our deacons to come forward as we prepare to celebrate communion together.
Here at First Baptist Church, we believe in what is called open communion. What open communion mean is, it means is simply this, that, that you don't have to be a member of First Baptist Church to celebrate communion with us. As a matter of fact, you don't have to be a quote-unquote member of any church to celebrate communion with us. If you have accepted the grace of Jesus Christ and you believe that he is your Savior and God, we invite you this morning to celebrate communion with us. The table is open to you. This morning, I'd invite you as we pass the elements to consider God's movement and work in your life and to consider ways that God wants to move in and through you to take his gospel, the truth of his broken body and shed blood into a world in need. How his sacrifice needs to be seen in and through and heard through your words. Father God, I pray that you would work and move in and through us today. God, that you would make for us these morning this bread and this cup to be for us the body and blood of Jesus. That you would remind us this morning of the greatness of your love for us and the sacrifice that you made for us. May it shape us. May it mold us and make us into the image of the risen Christ. And may it empower us to be conduits of your grace in the words of life in this world so desperately in need. In Jesus' name.